0: everyone uh, welcome to another episode of let's talk with smitty we got a great show today and a, a great friend of mine uh, jeff roy who's a state representative from the 10th norfolk district uh resides in the town of franklin that's got a whole nother history which we'll get into as well with, with my good buddy uh i've been in the legislature for several years and he's currently the chair of the committee on telecommunications utilities and energy welcome aboard jeff
1: hey smitty it is uh, great to be back with you um uh... I love the Berkshires. I love everything you do out in the Berkshires and, uh, thrilled to be, uh, back with you to talk anything you want. Are we talking energy? We're going to talk Franklin, uh, I, I sure would hope we can dive into the Berkshires too, because I'm looking to do some bike riding out there this summer. Well, you, you've, been a, you've been a frequent visitor to the Berkshires, and when we did Berkshire Days a couple of years ago, uh, you and your wife came
0: out here, and I, I trust you had a great time. We're going to try to plan that again for next year, so get it on your Perfect. calendar for early August, but uh, we appreciate you taking the time to join us. And I, I want to tell our, our listeners, tell us a little bit about you, something about yourself, and I think even more importantly, um, what possessed you to run for public office?
1: Sure. So um, I've been uh, out in this area of the state. I grew up in Milford, Massachusetts and moved to Franklin in 1986 and have been here ever since. I, uh, before I got into the legislature, I was a uh, trial lawyer uh, from for 28 years, so 1986 right up to uh, 2013 uh, when I got uh, elected to the House. I still continue my my law practice, uh, but I, I did uh, trials in uh, the superior courts of Massachusetts, the district courts of Massachusetts. I even uh, tried a case out in Laramie County, Colorado. I've handled clients from uh, all over the United States. Most of them from Massachusetts. Uh, most of them uh, uh, who suffered injuries uh, in construction accidents, automobile accidents, product liability. Uh, litigation, some medical malpractice litigation. And, uh, you know, I have been doing that, enjoyed that career. Uh, but I have to say that I, like so many others, uh, when the Twin Towers came down on September 11th of uh, 2001, began to look and uh, say, if, uh, you know, if private practice uh, of law was the only thing I had to offer to the world, and that desire to give back uh, really Uh, you know, stuck with me. And so I ran for a seat on the school committee in Franklin and Franklin's the birthplace of Horace Mann, the father of public education. So I said, uh, if education should be important uh, in any community, it ought to be important in the town of Franklin, which, uh, you know, was the birthplace of the father of public education. So uh, that got me uh, involved in uh, government and Really enjoyed it, Uh, ran first on the town council 10 years later. And uh, when I got there, uh, our our sitting state representative, uh, Jim Valley, had resigned and uh, that seat opened up in 2012 and uh, I wanted to step up uh, to the state level to continue the work uh, that I was doing. I thought I could have uh, much more influence uh, as a state official. And so I put my uh, name in the in the hat to run for that seat. Uh, there were five of us running for that open seat. And uh, I was the last man standing after the election in mm-hmm. November. And uh, I have to say, it's uh, been the greatest opportunity I've had in my life to actually do something uh, constructive and uh, working with uh, folks like you, Smitty, on some of the uh, issues that uh, tax our friends and neighbors throughout the Commonwealth has been the most rewarding um, experience I've had in my life and love this job, best job I've ever had and uh, look forward to doing it uh, for a lot longer.
0: Uh, David Gergen, who uh, y- you, know, you know, is was a uh, consultant to four different presidents, uh, Republicans and Democrats, was interviewed about a month ago. And he was asking it was being asked why young people are not uh, getting involved in government service or even service. And he said that the, they get kind of preoccupied with you know, getting out of college and wanting to make money. Maybe they got student debt or whatever. And before the show started, Jeff, you, you met a, a very briefly, a, a great young man. He's doing an internship in my office, Jack O'Brien. He's a rising senior at Lenox High School, very involved and very uh, engaging in civics um, and wanting to learn more. And he's really been a a, a really bright spot in in my office for the last couple of weeks. But what what advice would you give to young people who sometimes get very frustrated with government, the pace of government and the discourse of government, that you can make a difference. What you described your own path was fabulous, but what's the best advice you would give to a young person today who's thinking about getting involved maybe not government, but of service?
1: Well, I would stress to them, uh, you know, the importance of service. And I think uh, a lot of us do follow that path. Uh, David Brooks uh, just wrote a a book uh, called The Second Mountain. And he talks about folks, you know, establishing career and uh, doing their work and making their contribution through uh, a job. But over the course of, uh, you know, 10, 20 years doing that job, uh, realizing that uh, they may not necessarily be uh, achieving that level of fulfillment that uh, we all want in our life and uh, that, uh, you know, the the second mountain is that time when you uh, go back out on your journey in life and uh, do something that's very fulfilling uh, to you. And to me, that was uh, uh, getting involved with public service provided that level of fulfillment. And I would say uh, to young people uh, who are out there, uh, you know, do what you have to do uh, to pay your bills and pay back all those student loans and uh, get your life in order. And remember that uh, you'll have an opportunity uh, to, to do something even more fulfilling, and don't let that opportunity uh, pass you by. Um, those who, who complain about government or think that government's not doing the right thing, I, I like to remind them that ours is a government for the people and by the people. And if you don't like what your government is doing, I suggest you go into your bedroom or your bathroom and look in the mirror, and you're looking at your government because we truly are a government of the people. And if you don't like what you see, you see that person in the mirror and that person in the mirror has to go out and do something to change it. And you can't make change unless you have a seat at the table. And I don't care if it's a a school committee seat, a conservation commission seat, uh, a building committee in your community, select board, board of health, state representative, don't run against my friend Smitty, but, uh, you know, any position you can find out there, you really have an opportunity to make a difference in people's lives. And uh, you should get involved because, um, you know, to, to, to whom much is given, much is expected. I think that's a, that's a, a biblical line that really has a significant meaning. And, and we want so much this life, and we're given so much in this life, uh, we must understand uh, the obligation to give back. And um, I think that's the best that I can share uh, with young folks and uh, hope that they will follow along this path. And if you don't believe me, go out and read uh, David Brooks's book and uh, he'll make a convincing case for you.
0: I think the other thing that's important, uh, Jeff, is that, and I really believe if we start young it becomes habit forming for the next generation and i always tell young people that you know getting involved in your government doesn't mean you have to run for public office not a lot of people want to put their name on the ballot and you kind of put it out there for the world to tear apart but you know volunteering and get involved in your local conservation commission like you said those are critically important positions to keep a small town running or a big city running but you don't have to run for a public office but you have to understand how government works so i i preach that's great advice a very stage advice and uh I'm a big believer. If we start young, it becomes habitual and it becomes a life journey uh, before you know it. You've been there 10 years. I've been there 20 years in the legislature. I, I, where did the 10 years go? Where did the 20
1: years go? Did you ever, when you first ran, did you think you'd be there 10 years or what was your ultimate goal? Uh, I, I got there and I thought that uh, if I could serve for 10 years, that would be great. Um, but I have found that uh, there's a steep learning curve. Uh, there's a um, a progression that you go through, um, moving up through the ranks, and uh, you know, getting a, a committee chairmanship is very helpful to uh, moving things along. And I did not find my sweet spot in the House of Representatives until this term. This is my fifth term being there. I, I did have some, I would say, some you know, minor or moderate successes, but, um, did not completely, um, you know, understand or see truly how things could happen and move until this term. And, and I'm like, okay, I'm just there in my sweet spot. Um, I need to, I need to serve longer, uh, to really achieve the things that, uh, I would like to do. And, uh, you know, I'm hoping I can get 20 years uh, in the House of Representatives like my good friend, Smitty.
0: Well, that wasn't my ultimate goal, but it's to kind of turned into that. But I think you're, you're right. There's a big learning curve. I thought I knew a lot being a local selectman for a number of years and a county commissioner. But, boy, you go down, you're thinking, you know, a lot and you really realize just how much you don't know. And about building those relationships, which makes it work. And you, I you still won't... have
1: a lot to learn. I, it, oh, no question. It's, it's incredible. Um You know, just when you think you have everything figured out, there's a whole new uh, cast of things that you you have to learn. So, um, you know, I'm still on that that learning module. Uh, The manual that I got uh, when we did uh, legislative boot camp, you know, was not big enough to help me uh, navigate every potential problem that we've gone through.
0: Yeah. Now you you've always been you know my presidential historian of the United States, and you're one of one. What is it like two thousand people that have actually visited every single presidential library in America?
1: That is correct. I'm I'm waiting for my certificate to come in the mail from the National Archives. I completed the journey in uh, September of 2021, uh, and here I am. Uh, sitting here talking to you in July of 2022 (laughs) and the certificate has not yet uh, arrived in the mail. Um, It's uh, it's was an incredible experience. Uh, uh, A lot of traveling, but uh, very rewarding and um, some great lessons in leadership from studying uh, past presidents. These are people who are ordinary people who uh, took on uh, the role of the, the leader of the, the free world, and problems were thrown into their laps. And it's interesting to watch and see how they navigated through these problems and uh, changed the course of history for all of us. Uh, and just studying these people and their methods and uh, their successes and their failures has been uh, very rewarding and enriching for me. Of all the libraries you've
0: visited, uh, which one's your favorite? And not, not, not your favorite president, but maybe the favorite library.
1: My favorite library, uh, um, it's a close one, but uh, okay. clearly the best uh, was LBJ's library yes. in Austin, Texas. And I say LBJ uh, because he was, aside from what happened in mm-hmm. Vietnam, he was the most productive president of any. He had the most pieces of legislation uh, pass uh, over the course of his uh, years as the president of the United States. And I say, but for uh, Vietnam, he would go down in history as one of the greatest presidents. And his library really shares that narrative and that story. You walk in the front door of that library and the first thing you see are hundreds of pens that were used to sign Uh, the uh, close to a thousand pieces of legislation that he was responsible for while he was president. Most, uh, most notorious is the civil rights act of 1964, him being able to marshal that through uh, with his skill uh, was incredible, but uh, you know, things that we take for granted, um, you know, uh, such as consumer product safety issues, um, um, Cons, uh, consumer protection, um, arts and, uh, and, and culture. Uh, I could go on and on. I actually have a, a list hanging in my office uh, here that all of the things that uh, he accomplished and I keep uh, in my office, uh, one of the pens he used to sign a, a consumer protection uh, law regarding automobile safety um, because he was such a productive president uh, um that uh, i absolutely love that library and it's the largest one it's like 10 stories uh, it is a true monument to a larger than life uh, president and the the funny thing is we were uh, i was there with my daughter and we were about to leave we were in the gift shop and uh, as we were checking out the uh, the attendant said have you been to lbj's ranch And I said, no. I said, "Uh, is that open to the public? She said, yes. Uh, After Lady Bird died, uh, it was conveyed to the National Park Service. And it's a great place to visit. I said, well, where is it? And uh, she said, it's about 100 miles from here. um, But it's very well worth the journey. And I I looked at my daughter, who had just driven (laughs) 1,500 miles with me over the course of the last seven days. And I said, yeah, I have another 100 miles in (laughs) you. Dad, she goes, knowing you. If we don't go see that ranch, I will hear about this for the rest of my life. Let's go to the ranch. And, uh, you know, both of us uh, came away from that experience saying, thank God we went because we actually got to see where LBJ spent uh, a great part of his time. It brought back some memories for me as a child growing up in the 60s, seeing the picture of him playing with his beagle on the lawn seeing him swimming in the pool, the pool is still there, seeing him drive his amphibious vehicle in the river. That amphibious vehicle was parked in the garage at the ranch. It was just incredible to see uh, and walk uh, in his footsteps. And uh, so by far, uh, that's my favorite, but a close second is Harry Truman's in Independence, Missouri.
0: My guest today is uh, State Representative Jeff Roy, uh, a great friend from the 10th Norfolk District in Franklin, and he's currently the House Chair of the Committee on Telecommunications, Utilities, and Energy. I wanna stay on the presidential stuff for just a, a couple more minutes, Jeff, if you don't mind. You know, one of your big, big passions is about civility and government and you know the ability to uh, agree to disagree, disagree without being disagreeable. I think Massachusetts does a very good job in a very bipartisan way uh, with our colleagues across the aisle. Um, but when you think back and you watch the January 6th hearings um, and what happened uh, on January 6th last year, as a presidential historian, did that shake you a little bit? Or we've gone from what your opinion of the greatest president, Lyndon B. Johnson, to an insurrection on, on our U.S. Capitol. What were your feelings about that from a historical perspective?
1: You know, it, it, it shaken is a great word to describe, um, and you may recall. That um, you and I were in session finishing out the uh, previous session on January 5th of uh, 2021. And we were actively involved in legislating until about two or three o'clock in the morning. Um, you know, got a little sleep and uh, woke up to be sworn in for the next session on January 6th at, at, uh, at 10 o'clock in the morning. And I don't know about you, but I, uh, you know, was exhausted at the end of that um, that uh, swearing-in ceremony, and decided I was just going to sit on my couch and uh, enjoy a little television uh, and just relax. And I turned on the TV only to see uh, what was going on in Washington D.C., and I could not believe uh, that before my very eyes. Uh, we were seeing uh, an insurrection take place on the Capitol, which was attempting to interfere with the orderly transition of power. And it brought me back to uh, my visit to uh, Congress Hall in Philadelphia many years ago and uh, walking into the the room at Congress Hall on the first floor and the uh, tour guide explaining to us, that that was the room where George Washington had turned over the presidency to John Adams in a ceremony that was civil. And uh, they recounted it as the first time in the history of human civilization that power transferred from one leader to another without a war or a coup. And that has been the history of the United States of America since that moment back in 1798, where power has transferred peacefully from leader to leader every time we have an election. And for the first time in the history of the United States, we saw an interference with that orderly transfer of power, which sickened me to the core. And, uh, you know, I, I, I could not fathom that this was happening uh, in our country. Um, I'm glad that uh, there is a committee that is looking into this issue, studying this issue, conducting hearings on this issue. And uh, they have been very instructive about just how close we came to losing uh, what we know as the United States of America. And just how fragile a democracy truly is, uh, and it's up to us uh, to keep it uh, all together and keep it moving so that uh, the next transfer of power will return to that uh, that orderly transfer, just as uh, with the precedent was set by George Washington and John Adams.
0: Um, we haven't lost it, Jeff, but how do we recover from this? I mean, clearly the country is very divided. Our federal Congress is very divided. What, what's it going to take to recover from this? I mean, the midterm elections are coming up this fall. Obviously, that'll be a, a telltale sign of where, where where this country is going. But from your perspective and the historical perspective, what what's it going to take and what's it going to require us to do to kind of right this ship for the greater good?
1: Uh, you, you know, keep in mind that America went through a civil war from 1861 to 1865 where uh, brother was killing brother and uh, fellow countrymen were killing fellow countrymen. And uh, we were able to uh, survive that. Um, and I look back at that as a, as a great lesson uh, for us. Um, I am a strong believer in the power of education to overcome that, and uh, I believe that if we, uh, you know, provide a great education to our young people, and they can see uh, what happens um, and how what we perceive as, as as minor things can can turn into something um, you know catastrophic, and they understand that, I, I believe in my soul that uh, that's, that's a way to overcome this. And I think you may recall uh, back in December when the legislature passed the Genocide Education Act, um, you know, one of the, um, one of the things that we were looking at as we were considering that legislation was, um, you know, people who were holocaust survivors are are dying off and there aren't many left to tell the story of what happened uh, in that genocide uh, and we we've had so many other genocides and they they repeat and uh, as horrible as it is and we all think that uh, and understand that uh, killing other human beings is so wrong and in, in a a methodical elimination of, uh, you know, a race of people is so wrong, but yet it continues to happen over and over and over again uh, in the history of human civilization. And so, you know, we wanted to teach young people about genocide and how, you know, words that may sound just like a joke or something innocent can give rise to hatred uh, and can give rise to uh, hate groups. And those hate groups can evolve and uh, can overturn a government, can overturn a society, can lead to uh, a genocide much like uh, what happened uh, in Germany uh, uh, back uh, close to a hundred years ago. Um, And I believe in the power of education to um, help us overcome these terrible things that we view in society. And, uh, you know, I would hope that uh, someday we can return to objective news gathering and news reporting. Uh, I fear the loss of uh, local news and local newspapers. Um, At the same time, we see the rise in social media, which is unfiltered. I mean, when you, when you open up uh, your newspaper out in the western part of the state, and I open the Boston Globe and on the eastern part of the, the Commonwealth, I have an understanding that the stories that are in that paper have gone through an editing process. And um, yeah, there, there may be some bias in there, but it's been checked and it's been fact checked and they're not going to put in false information. Well, when you gather your news from a social media source such as Facebook or some other site, you don't have the benefit of it having been filtered or edited uh, for truthfulness. And uh, I, I'm hoping that we can get a return to uh, editing for truthfulness and a uh, and move away from the. Uh, the misinformation which dominates our airwaves uh, today, that, those are ways I think we're going to uh, bring this country back together. And we need a leader uh, in the White House uh, who feels that way and uh, is, a, is someone who is going to uh, pull us all together. Very well said. Um,
0: I, I look at the, the
1: beautiful building
0: and the picture behind you um, where we get to go to work every day. is still an honor for me 20 years later and very humbling. I, I actually, you know, even during uh, uh, off formal session days, I'll go in to sit at my desk, which is uh, just a couple of rows ahead of you, um, not by any seniority or any re- other reason, but I just sit there and I I look at the names up on that vaulted ceiling and I, these are the people that not only helped build the city of Boston and the Commonwealth, but helped build America. And I'm very humbled by that, to have that few moments by myself in that chamber. And I think of my grandfather who, you know, left Italy at the age of 19, never went back, never had, never went, left his family, went, went to America by himself uh, just to have his grandson in that building as a pretty special place. And you and I are one of 160 people in a state of 7 million people who can go into that room very freely. And it's really a humbling experience for me, but in your position as the chair of the TUE committee, you've just returned from a trip to Denmark. We've had a lot of conversation about climate change and and, uh, which is still a debate (laughs) in many, many circles, but what did you learn? I think we've been very, I'd say progressive and and visionary uh, in Massachusetts the last few years, and uh, you're right at the helm of that right now. But what lessons have you learned from other countries that you can bring back to Massachusetts, if not America, on what we should deal with with this? Something's going on with the climate. Just last week, we had a uh, 85 mile an hour winds with a, uh, it was kind of like a microburst storm in the town of Lenox. Uh, One person actually lost his life. Um so something's going on these are storms we haven't experienced uh, in my lifetime growing up in Lennox but what have you learned from other other countries that we can kind of deal with in Massachusetts with this very issue
1: well um i would say uh the the trip to denmark was uh extremely eye opening and uh, couldn't have come at a better time because right now uh we are in the the middle of uh of a conference committee uh, reconciling uh, the House bill, which uh, did a lot for offshore wind, grid modernization, transmission, and a host of other um, energy related issues, following up on the heels of the roadmap bill that we did in 2021, where we set uh, goals for the Commonwealth to achieve in terms of uh, reducing emissions. and. Uh, the goal is by 2050 uh, to, be, uh, to have removed all of the emissions and be at net zero because those emissions are causing uh, the global warming. And uh, if we do not stop the global warming, uh, we will reach a point where sea levels will rise, uh, we'll have much worse uh, and hostile um, uh, weather events. And uh, if you think the heat wave that we are going through right now is bad, uh, it'll only get worse. And we were reminded in February this year uh, by the UN's uh, uh, climate group that uh, if we don't do something about climate change very quickly, uh, we will reach a point of no return. And uh, so one of the things about going to a place like Denmark was to look at a vanguard country that uh, has had major advances in clean and renewable energy to see what they've done, get an understanding of how they did it and what we can bring back uh, to uh, Massachusetts. Uh, What struck me at the very uh, outset was their reliance on offshore wind as a source of renewable energy. And they've been at this for uh, close to 30 years and they have uh, developed an ecosystem uh, for using uh, robust winds uh, off of the ocean, uh, mostly in the North Sea, and uh, bringing that uh, that wind power, which is clean energy, uh, to power uh, their homes. They have also created, uh, a manufacturing ecosystem where they manufacture the turbines and the blades, and, and they employ uh, so many people uh, in the construction of these turbines, uh, putting them out in the ocean. It's a whole new uh, industry um, that we're hoping to bring to the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Um, as you may know, uh, in November of 2021, we broke ground for the first commercial um, size offshore wind farm in the entire United States, and that's going to be 14 miles uh, south of of Martha's Vineyard. That is going to be a tremendous boost for the Commonwealth in reaching energy independence, because we'll produce that energy uh, off the coast of Martha's Vineyard, and we will no longer have to import energy in from other states uh, you know we have a natural gas pipeline that brings natural gas into uh, the commonwealth of massachusetts uh we need to lessen our reliance on these uh, imported energy sources and develop our own energy uh, resources and that was something that uh, i took back from uh denmark how well they've been able to do it and and the final piece i'll talk about from the denmark trip uh because it's actually a subject of a USA Today article uh, that came out in uh, today's uh, paper. So uh, if you have a chance, take a look. But uh, it talked about um, what we do with all our waste in Massachusetts, uh, our trash. Um, and the story was, was began uh, by the fact that uh, the state of Maine is no longer allowing out-of-state trash to be uh, put in its landfills. And the reporter wanted to know, hey, what's Massachusetts going to do? Because uh, 90% of the trash that went to the landfill in Maine came from Massachusetts. And uh, so I I happened to be in Denmark when the reporter was interviewing me and I said, uh, well, I said, I just visited a a waste-to-energy plant where they take 250 truckloads of trash every day that drive into this building. Uh, and it is, uh, it is converted into energy and uh, with a substantial reduction in emissions as a result of that. And it's, a, it's like an eight or nine story building. And you'd think that this would be a smelly, dirty, grimy uh, factory. But in fact, uh, they made it a uh, recreation area. So on the roof, which is about eight or nine stories up, there's an observation deck so that you can see the city of Copenhagen and the bay. There's a ski uh, uh, mountain that goes down the roof of the structure all the Mm -hmm. way to the ground. So you can ski year round because it's artificial snow. And they also have uh, the largest rock climbing wall in all of Europe that's part of this facility. So they turned what you would expect to be a dirty, grimy, dingy uh, waste to energy facility and turned it into a recreation area that is actually uh, powering uh, hundreds of thousands of homes in Copenhagen. And they said, this is a creative area. And I was amazed at how they were able to develop these sources of renewable energy in a fashion that was acceptable and uh, embraced by the citizens of Denmark, powered their homes, providing clean, renewable energy, and was, were part of the economic development package for the whole country. So uh, it was a great experience. Uh, and I came back with more energy, no pun intended, and enthusiasm for passing our own climate legislation, uh, which we're hoping to get to the governor's desk in the next few days. In, in, our, in
0: our last few minutes, uh, Jeff, I just had a couple of questions. You know, I, I always, I tell people all the time that the, the House of Representatives is truly a House of Representatives. You know, I, as you know, I spent most of my adult life as an electrician. Uh, you're a lawyer. We're, we've had school teachers and nurses and doctors, and it just really runs the full gamut. It truly is a house of representatives. But um,
1: you have your own band. You're a singer.
0: That's that's kind of a hobby, I guess. You've got a couple CDs out there. But the the other area that you've been really part of and very passionate about is the Pan Mass Challenge. That, what is a 150-mile bike ride? 192, oh, Smitty. Come on. 100, okay. 192. <laughs> so you've been doing this for close to 20 years. What what, yeah. what 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 brought you and I and I've seen you at the state house, walking out of the state house, riding your bike back to Franklin. So you're yes, a very yeah. passionate biker. But what brought you into the uh, the uh, the Pan Mass Challenge initially?
1: Well, it, it's a sad story, uh, but one of my closest <laughs> friends um, had called me, and uh, he had stage four colon cancer back hmm. in uh, uh, two thousand two. And uh, I knew that that was a a, a fatal uh, disease and uh, that he would not be with us much longer. And, you know, talking to my friend and, you know, trying to offer him some comfort in a most difficult time, I just felt like I wasn't, you know, really giving him anything. And uh, I had learned about this uh, bike ride. Uh, that raises money uh, for cancer. All, the, all of the money goes to the Dana-Farber Institute in, in Boston and a uh, hundred cents of every dollar that's raised goes to Dana-Farber. And uh, so I went to my friend, I said, you know something, um, I don't know if these talks have been uh, meaningful or helpful to you, but I have found something that I can do uh, that can hopefully make a difference. And uh, I'm, I've never ridden uh, long distance on a bike, but I'm gonna take on this pan mass challenge and ride 192 miles in your honor. And uh, Phil, I'm, I'm gonna ride until uh, we find a cure. And uh, 20 years later, uh, we're still looking.
0: I volunteered um, at the finish line a few years ago. Uh, i actually brought my daughter because I wanted her to experience I wasn't going to ride 192 miles, but but um, the power of the exhilaration, I think, of the people who were in that race to reach Provincetown, and all I all my, myself, my daughter, did was hand out waters, uh, bottles of water. But I could feel it; I could feel the power of it. And you know, can, sadly, cancer has stricken every one of us or our families in some shape or form. But I, I felt it that day, and I really admire uh, that you do this each and every year, Jeff. So God bless you for doing that. Um, as we close, are you ready for some rapid-fire questions?
1: Absolutely. Is this uh, like a quiz? It's like a quiz,
0: but it's just no right or wrong answer. But uh, hopefully you'll get, you'll get your part right. But um, all right, rapid-fire.
1: Favorite movie? Oh, boy. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to say The World According to Gop, because it is one of my favorite movies.
0: Oh, very good.
1: Favorite colleague? Favorite colleague? Smitty Pignatelli.
0: <laughs> Smitty Pignatelli. Pigna. And full disclosure, Jeff Roy and Siri are the only people who actually pronounced my last name correctly. So thank you for doing that. (laughs) Um, Favorite president.
1: You know, even though uh, he had all of his troubles, I'm going to say LBJ um, and close second FDR because of what they did for this country. Okay. What was your first job? Uh, My first job was as a a ticket taker at the Milford Cinema, uh, where um, I ripped your tickets as you came in and put them in the box. Not really sure what the purpose of taking that half of the ticket was. (laughs) Uh, We never counted them. We ended up throwing them away, but uh, that was my job. And When I wasn't tearing tickets, I was behind the counter serving people uh, buttered popcorn, uh, candy, and Tab, because I knew they were watching their weight.
0: Well, our, our colleague Paul McMurtry could probably use, it, use you at the Dedham Theater someday. Yes, so. he,
1: he has used me at the theater in a few <laughs> um,
0: Favorite Norman Rockwell model?
1: Oh, uh, again, Smitty Pignatelli. I, <laughs> I have that model, uh, that uh, picture hanging up in my office. And I love sharing the story of you modeling for Norman Rockwell I love sharing that story with anybody who comes into my office. And probably the hardest question I'm going to throw at you is if you
0: could give one piece of advice to your younger self, what would it be?
1: Persist. Very good.
0: Excellent. Chairman Jeff Roy, State Representative Jeff Roy, great friend Jeff Roy, I appreciate you taking the time to join us today.
1: Thank you for having me and uh, good luck in your race. I am looking forward to getting out in the Berkshires and knocking some doors with you. Well, fair enough. And uh, we'll be back next week with another great show. Um,
0: Until then, be well, be safe, have fun, be happy. Let's all take care of one another, folks. Let's all be Berkshire.